I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing China's ambitions to reform and influence global governance. In recent years, Xi Jinping has openly stated his desire to play a larger role in global governance reform. Chinese critiques of the international order and behavior within multilateral institutions suggest that Beijing seeks to expand its say on a few key global issues. A February 2019 report by the Center for American Progress titled Mapping China's Global Governance Ambitions analyzes these actions in an effort to explain China's true intentions. One of its takeaways is that China is challenging the democratic principles that currently shape global governance. How successful China will be in doing so, and the role that liberal democracies can play in preserving the post-World War II liberal international order remains to be seen. To discuss China's participation in global governance reform and the CAP report, I'm joined today by co-author Dr. Melanie Hart. Dr. Hart is a senior fellow and director of China policy at the Center for American Progress, where she focuses on U.S. foreign policy toward China, particularly around issues of energy, climate change, and cross-border investment. Melanie, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. In recent years, Chinese leaders have talked about how they want to take on the challenges of global governance reform. Xi Jinping talked about wanting to actively participate. Then he talked about wanting to guide. And then in June of 2018, he elevated this to a priority of Chinese foreign policy, saying for the first time that China should lead global governance reform. Why is China dissatisfied with the current global governance regime? And what kind of reforms does it seek? China has two complaints about the current regime. The first is that it was designed largely by and for Western democratic nations and thus promotes and supports liberal democratic values that China itself does not want to be held to with its own citizens. And also the current global governance regime in China's view is too U.S. centric in terms of who has a seat at the table and who has the greater authority and decision making. China always prefers says that it always prefers having a very large group of nations at the table. It likes a UN model of governance. Not too happy about, say, the G7, the OECD type of decision making where there's a smaller group of countries where the U.S. and China's view has too much influence and power. So this has obviously been something that the Chinese have been talking about for years. Are you able to determine the extent to which U.S. policy has been a factor in Beijing's decision to really proactively push this agenda of uh, global governance reform? Do they see that the Trump administration's withdrawal from international agreements, such as the Iran deal, the Paris Climate Change Agreement, uh, the U.N. Human Rights Council, has this somehow been uh, a, a driver of Beijing's agenda, this sense that maybe the U.S. withdrawal has created more opportunities for China, um, maybe even a window opportunity that might slip away. Absolutely. Chinese scholars are very clear in stating that under the Trump administration, the U.S. has disappeared from the scene, creating a shortfall in global governance that Beijing now has an opportunity to step in and fill. Really, from China's perspective, by leaning back 
globally, the Trump administration is giving China an opportunity to move faster than it normally would, according to its level of development and the amount of power that it's amassed, and start influencing the global governance system almost before its time and punching above its weight in that regard. I wanted to ask you about the significance of Xi Jinping's uh, concept of a community of shared future for mankind. Uh, some diplomats from countries that come and talk to me uh, say that including something like this in UN Human Rights Council documents isn't that big a problem. But uh, in your report, you emphasize that this is a problem in China's um, ambitions to reform global governance. So can you explain what are the Chinese trying to do here? Sure. So it's really important that we pay attention to the terms that Chinese leaders use when they're trying to shape global institutions and norms and be thoughtful about understanding what exactly they mean by those terms. Because a lot of times so far, we've, we've, we have too often rolled our eyes and looked at these terms as fluffy PR and allowed Chinese leaders to insert them all over the place in UN language and elsewhere without thinking critically about what what, what the potential implications are and what China's intent is with this kind of language. Common destiny for mankind is really interesting. This reflects a Chinese governance principle whereby, um, and, and I'm this is not my own uh, uh, view, I'm quoting, I'm sharing what I, I under, how I understand this from reading lots and lots and lots of Chinese scholars and Chinese Communist Party writings on this. Basically, the common destiny for mankind is similar to the way within China, the Chinese Communist Party says that it reflects all of the Chinese people. So there's a lot of um, political writings in China saying that democracies are a problem because in democracies, you have all of these different interest groups fighting for one another and somebody always loses. However, unlike democracies in China, the Chinese Communist Party doesn't favor anyone's interests. It is kind of the grandmother of Chinese, the Chinese people. It is it claims to reflect and perfectly balance everyone's interests. And China's saying, basically saying that China can do the same thing at a global level, that there's an alternative way of running the global governance system whereby you don't have different interest groups struggling with one another, but rather a kind of higher authority um, ensuring that everything is balanced and harmonious and win-win for all. Of course, we know within China, in the Chinese political system, there are always losers. They're just quashed, and they don't have the ability to speak up about the fact that they're losing in that equation. And that's the... That's the approach that China is trying to push at a global level. And um, when, when you have a common destiny for mankind or the Chinese Communist Party regime at home, there is no external voice that can hold the Chinese Communist Party accountable to the people who lost out and how policy came down. There are no rules that can hold the regime accountable. It's just a voice on high that determines what everyone collectively needs within China, and they're suggesting that they can do the same thing at a global level as well. Hmm, interesting. So what about China's Belt and Road Initiative? How does that factor into uh, Xi Jinping's vision for global governance reform? There are really two layers to the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, it is, we, we should not as Americans, we tend to and we should not overlook the fact that for many nations, the Belt and Road 
financing and projects that they're receiving or filling infrastructure gaps that they need to have filled. So there are definitely some good that can happen when you have a lot of money flowing, supporting infrastructure projects. The problem is that China is bundling a lot of political software with the infrastructure hardware. And we see some concerning things rising up uh, here and there. In the digital space, for example, we see com- companies like Huawei building um, digital digital backbone networks for nations in Africa and then bringing officials from those nations to China, to China to learn how to control their internet the same way China does. So we see China's great fire, firewall creeping outward. Um, we've seen those cases at a one-off level, but what's even more concerning is that if you look at what uh, people are saying within China, there's an interesting conversation about how China might be able to stitch those individual cases together to create a new alternative global economic order. When Xi Jinping speaks to Western democracies, he's very careful to play down the normative aspects of the Belt and Road and just focus on the commercial projects. If you read the minutes of Xi Jinping's meetings with other other leaders from non-Western nations, there's much more conversation about a new normative order that, according to Chinese scholars, can be basically globalization 2.0. They describe that as a new global economic system that's not rules-based, but is rather development-based, which basically means China provides some kind of economic benefits, which might actually be a loan that makes that country then very much indebted to China. But there's some kind of economic benefits provided. And in return, those countries all respect China's political and diplomatic interests. From a U.S. perspective, that is obviously concerning. If you have a burgeoning global economic order centered around China, where there are no rules or standards through which anyone is held accountable, definitely not the Chinese, and where China utilizes those deals to then build a sphere of influence where it has a large group of nations that will support its political and diplomatic objectives. So when you talk about China building a sphere of influence, I wonder um, whether you see this as the Chinese drawing from history or is it something fundamentally new? You know, we've had authors like Howard French who've written about Tianxia, you know, all under heaven, sort of rebuilding the Sino-centric um, order, order for uh, relations between China and its neighbors, which some people think is just being expanded to the rest of the world. Um, is this sort of what the Chinese are are drawing from, or do you think it's something fundamentally new? There's some carryover. It's very interesting to read the way that Chinese scholars describe this initiative. They talk about, uh, for example, they make the argument that the the Chinese political system has something special to offer the world in the 21st century that no one else has on offer. They argue that in the globalized era, if you look at what's happening in the United States with the Trump administration, with rising inequality, with um, uh, police brutality and other racial issues that are surfacing. If you look what's happening in the UK with Brexit, uh, some Chinese scholars, particularly within the Chinese Communist Party, argue that that is evidence that democracies are not efficient enough and nimble enough to address the problems of the globalized era. That China's political system, since they have this grand party who is somehow magically balancing everyone's interests and making sure that the will of the people is being exercised. 
is uniquely capable at solving challenges in the more complex globalized era, that it can handle long-term planning for climate change, for terrorism, for refugee issues, the things that, according to Beijing, our democracies are just too clunky to deal with, and that China is now ready to share its wisdom and its uh, efficiency and governance secrets globally so that our global governance system can also be more nimble at solving those problems that are transnational, that are longer term, that are more complex, uh, that are globalized, and doing so in a way that balances the will of all the people. So it, it there is a kind of... Um, uh, hearkening back to the China, uh, the old model of China's sphere of influence, but there's also an element of politically China has figured out something special that is uh, only just now revealing itself in our current era and that the rest of the world will be delighted to learn from and benefit from. What role does China's adherence to its longstanding principle of non-interference in other countries' internal affairs um, play on this issue It's uh, in its participation in multilateral bodies and in its concept of China as a leader in global governance? Sure. So we see that China's behavior as a leader fluctuates quite a bit depending on the issue at hand and what, what forum they're interacting with other nations within. When it comes to the non-interference principle, Beijing is always worried that there could be another Tiananmen-style incident within China, another situation where the Chinese leadership is cracking down on the Chinese people in some way and that the international community is weighing whether or not to intervene and um, possibly in ways that could bring about the end of the Chinese regime. So they're always wanting to um, utilize their growing leadership role internationally to support and create a norm whereby the international community does not intervene on sovereignty issues within nation states. Because China has that special interest always in back of mind, they're always avoiding, um, they're always a drag on international collective efforts to intervene on problems that trace back to one particular nation state. So, for example, the humanitarian crisis in Syria. You can't address that crisis without looking at what the Assad regime is doing domestically within Syria. That makes China very nervous because that's getting to nation state issues. If you look at the North Korea crisis, um, the North Korea weapons situation, China, China is very jumpy and nervous about that because that goes back to what one particular regime is doing domestically and internationally with it's po with, with policy. If you look at climate change, there is no one regime who should be blamed for climate change. And so China is actually a a very positive global player on that issue. But when you have one nation state who's the root of the problem, China er, all, tends to always initially respond by obstructing international action because they're looking at the precedent they could set for themselves. However, one thing that's interesting to see is that if Beijing starts to perceive that holding back collective action is making other unilateral action more likely, then they can change their calculus. So one example would be in North Korea. China has long done everything it could to uh, hold back the UN Security Council from 
imposing harsh sanctions on North Korea that in China's view could threaten regime stability by making it impossible for Kim Jong-un to share economic benefits with uh, core stakeholders. But once China began to perceive that the lack of UN action might be emboldening the Trump administration to pursue military action on the Korean Peninsula that could produce an outcome even worse for China, then they suddenly started loosening up and supporting more action on sanctions. And we saw them do the same thing uh, with the Iranian nuclear uh, deal as well. They were opposed to sanctions that would be, in China's view, too tough on Iran. But once they started worrying or seeing evidence that Israel and other nations were considering military action, partly due to the lack of progress on sanctions, then they adjust their calculus. So. That principle we see is more flexible than some of the other principles on issues related to universal values that are more directly opposed to the Chinese regime. That one is more about tactics than it is about um, fundamentals, I would say. The Chinese um, at home domestically uh, basically have ruled by law, not rule um, of law. And yet, and the international system, the Chinese talk about supporting a rules-based order. So uh, their their Communist Party, of course, operates above the law <laughs> domestically. But they are trying to say that they can do something that's more democratic uh, abroad and, and, and that they can have a sort of rules-based order. So how do they resolve that contradiction? And is that something that's really possible? I think the the UN tribunal case with the Philippines is an actual excellent lens to use to see how China really handles international law. Basically, um, based on China's behavior in the international system and the statements that Chinese leaders make when cases don't go their way, we can see that China really enjoys participating in an international legal system and enjoying the benefits they get from that, which is in, which is stability and predictability, because you have nations following rules in a way that prevents, for example, um, every single trade complaint blowing up into an actual uh, hard war, because uh, you have WTO dispute mechanisms and whatnot. However, anytime the rules rule against China, there that may or may not, depending on China's calculus, trigger Beijing to state that actually they're above the law and they're not going to go along with the case in this in this instance. So in the in the Philippines UN tribunal example, China has an expansive um, as, as you well know, an expansive definition of its territories and uh, in the South China Sea. It has nine dash lines and artificial islands um, and a lot of different um, tactical maneuvers that it has been taking to try to expand the way that other nations view China's territorial position in the South China Sea. And the Philippines viewed some of those actions as infringing on their own sovereignty. So um, they responded as conventional international law suggests one should respond, they filed a case with the United Nations Tribunal on the Law of the Sea, which with it with the um uh, which which is the mechanism that the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea suggests countries should use if they have a dispute about how they're exercising their rights. Instead of acknowledging the legitimacy of the Philippines claim, the Chinese actually uh, basically accused the Philippines of um uh, to quote uh, a white paper concocting a pack of lies to uh, 
uh, defraud China of their um, so-called rights and um, basically declared that China does not accept tribunal rulings that infringe upon its sovereign will. So basically, Beijing said that after the tribunal ruled for the Philippines instead of against China, this China doesn't agree with that ruling and therefore it doesn't apply and China doesn't recognize it. Uh, subsequently, China launched a discourse power effort to convince other nations in Southeast Asia to accept China's uh, view of the tribunal ruling and implement it in a way that goes along with China's view. In the WTO, we see a, a slightly different approach. Sometimes China adjusts its policies when it loses cases at the WTO, when other nations challenge its trade policies. Other times, it might just change its regulations so that um, it is harder for other countries to put an exact finger on how China is violating WTO rules, but China continues to violate rules the same way in principle. So sometimes it's a very direct uh, call, uh, direct opposition to an international ruling as they did in the tribunal case. Other times they do a lot of bobbing and weaving as they do in the WTO case. But the common element is that although China may follow the rules sometimes, if the rules go against China, we shouldn't expect that China will respect the verdict. And that creates a problem because it means that for the rest of the international community, our international legal system is one that may not be able to hold the soon-to-be largest global economy accountable. And that begins to uh, undermine our legal systems from the inside. We talked a little bit about the UN uh, Human Rights Council. Can you talk about some other areas that you address in your report where China is pursuing global go global governance reform that we should be worried about? Uh, digital landscape is, is one of them. Maybe you can talk about that and other areas that you think we should be paying attention to where China is really trying to fundamentally change the norms that apply to these areas that could undermine uh, the democratic Western values. Sure. So human rights and and digital, the open global internet are two of the most important. On the digital front, I find it very interesting. Um, Xi Jinping and Chinese leaders and Chinese Communist Party scholars state very clearly that from China's perspective, the, a free and open global internet is a national security threat for China. So the way that they lay out the argument is to state that when the global internet is free and open, but China's internet is run along different principles, then that is a problem because the Chinese citizens look around and say, wait a minute, there's something that we're missing out on here. Why is our regime not giving us access to the same benefits that the rest of the world enjoys? And so um, Chinese leaders, instead of, there's, there's, a, there's a limit to how thick your firewall can get when you're the biggest global economy in the world measured by purchasing power parity. They have such deep integration economically and digitally with the world. They're, they're concerned that they can't um, manage that risk of disparity between China's internet and the global internet uh, going forward. And so they're seeking to shift the global internet to one that is not so free and open, but rather run according to the Chinese model. And they're doing that by through a couple of different avenues. One is that China is holding its own internet governance forums and inviting representatives from many different nations and companies from around the world to come to Beijing, um, to come to China and, and have discussions about how the internet should be run. And as part of those forums, they're releasing uh, 
common uh, statements that talk about the need for individual countries to balance open internet freedom and connectivity with other objectives such as public order, national security, and that kind of thing. So they're basically utilizing their market power to get companies, including some American companies, to show up and either explicitly or implicitly um, validate or sign on to these Chinese principles that it's okay to restrict internet freedom when you're pursuing some other conflicting objectives like national security or public order. So in this report, you're essentially raising alarm bells about what China is planning to do and already doing in some cases in the global governance reform space. And you recommend some actions that um, that uh, democratic states can take to ensure that these principles and norms are not eroded. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. What do you What do you think countries should do in order to preserve the post World War II uh, international order and prevent China from making these incursions and in, in areas uh, both where there are are already norms like Human Rights Council, where the Chinese are undermining them, or creating potentially new norms, uh, such as in the internet governance uh, space. Well, the good news is that the reason Beijing is obsessed with global governance and global norms is because they matter. Uh, so the, from, from women's standpoint, this is excellent evidence that actually the international system is a very powerful thing. And it has a lot of influence over the nations that operate within that system. And we may have taken for granted the system that we have developed and enjoyed and benefited from over the past decades. So basically, first and foremost, democracies need to figure out what we stand for in a globalized era. This is a challenging time for democracies, particularly for the United States and the UK as some of the first democracies to move forward. Um, we we have our own work to do at home and uh, updating our own policy model to deal with inequality and other problems that we're facing right now. But also we, we, we need to be combining forces with democracies globally and figuring out in this challenging globalized world where you have China uh, on track to become the biggest economy in the world, where you have Russia doing a lot of disruptive campaigns worldwide, interfering in democracies, what exactly do we stand for? What are our common principles that we want to uh, promote and defend? China is out there with a really clear PR pitch and we need to show up and put ours forward as well. And then, you know, we really need to engage China in a debate on the pitch that they're putting forward because the PR pitch is has a lot of really big holes in it. Um, we it's it's we just don't have the luxury of rolling our eyes and assuming that common destiny for mankind is fluffy, harmless rhetoric that uh, will will go away and that we can allow to become embedded in human rights council resolutions and elsewhere. So we really need to push China on what they mean by these issues. You know, Xi Jinping says that China uh, wants more diversity in the international system. And that sounds great. But what they mean by that is more authoritarianism, not all this democracy stuff everywhere. So we need to have a conversation about, we, we can't just uh, roll our eyes at um, the, the slick speech, but actually push back and push Chinese leaders to tell us exactly what they mean, what is their intent, and if they're pushing to reform the global governance system, what does this other system look like? And another area, a big lever that we have on our side is that democratic principles and systems can really stand up to transparency in a way that the Chinese model cannot. 
Um, you know, China talks a lot about it's all win-win and it's the Chinese Communist Party is balancing everyone's interests perfectly. Well, our understanding is that there might be up to two million people in internment camps within China. So clearly there are some big losers in this entrance balancing that's going on. So we should have pushed China to explain how exactly does that balance of interests stack up to the way that democracies balance interests and give everyone a voice and how can we trust that that system is is so great if the voices that are losing out on it are suppressed. So we have a lot of levers on our side, but so far we've basically been leaning back and not showing up for this game, and we really can't continue to do that. Finally, let me ask um, whether you think that China is going to be successful in its effort to really set these new norms. And and, and part of that is, is, is looking at how much um, appeal China's agenda has to states uh, around the world. And and there is some evidence that China's message is having some resonance in 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 places. Uh, so it, and and the other part of that um question that I'd like to ask is whether you think this is really all about Xi Jinping. Um is if 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 he were to leave the scene, would China continue on this ambitious agenda uh, or not? On the Xi Jinping question, you know, we can't know for sure if someone, a different Chinese leader in his position at this point in time would be as ambitious globally or not. Um, Chinese leaders were talking about global governance reform in the Hu Jintao era. They just weren't talking about leading global governance reform internationally. And, you know, we have to remember that when Deng Xiaoping called on China to hide its strength, buy its time, bide its time and never take the lead, China was at a very particular point in its history where it really didn't have the economic clout or the military clout to take the lead. Um, And hide your strength and bide your time suggests that you're eventually going to come out and do things. So, you know, it's really, I'm sure individual leaders' personalities always play into things to some degree as the nation with Trump as president. We understand that better than anyone. So I'm sure his personality and personal interest plays a role, but we shouldn't assume that when Xi Jinping goes away, that this ambition of China's will go away. We should assume that this is something that's here to stay for quite some time. And in terms of whether China will be successful or not, I think that has everything to do with whether or not democracies respond by um, leveraging our own systems and values to push China to be more accountable to the vision that it's uh, pushing forward at a global level and shining a light on some of the negative sides of that vision so that we can help uh, recipient nations moderate it. There are some small nations in Africa that China has already built their digital backbone networks and China Star TV is already running their broadcast space and they don't have as much either economic clout or political freedom to push back and hold China accountable to some of its promises. But the United States sure does. And a lot of other democracies do. And we have a responsibility to lean in and help um, both defend what we've built, but also modernize it and update it and respond to some of the cha- the the problems that China is pointing out, such as the fact that our status quo global governance systems are not providing enough opportunity for developing countries to have a voice. We can be responsive to that and update our system without undermining the principles that we hold dear. 
We've been talking with Dr. Melanie Hart, who's Senior Fellow and Director of China Policy at the Center for American Progress. Thanks for joining us today, Melanie. Thanks for having me.